Another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished. I did actually try no caffeine for a few days last weekend. That was a huge mistake. So that means it's time for another episode of Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, TV show marathoner, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very for my 50th episode. Can you believe it? 50 episodes. I have to be honest, I started off last week writing about a show I really love, but it just wasn't flowing. And I knew that if I recorded an episode about it now, it would just sound completely wrong, stilted and not what I wanted to give to you guys as my listeners. So after an afternoon of watching the remake of The Italian Job, Half of Wanted, And the entirety of The Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, I realised that I should make use of my action movie kick and actually talk about one. There are a lot that I could happily and easily talk about. This girl isn't only about rom-coms and comedies, you know. So what is the film I have decided to talk about today in order to mark my very special 50th episode? How about a few clues? Clue one, it shares some plot points with a film released in 1991. Clue two, there are a lot of what I consider beautiful things in this film. And no, I am not referring to Chris Evans, though he does fit that criteria. Clue three, this is one film in a considerably sized franchise. Any closer to guessing? No? Okay, I guess I'll have to tell you. Well, Being honest, I would have had to tell you anyway. For my 50th episode, I am going to be talking about the first film in a franchise that has been going for 20 years, The Fast and the Furious. I can hear you all asking, what is she doing talking about a car franchise? Well, for those of you who don't know me that well, I actually really love cars. And here I am not talking about your regular Mercedes C200 saloons or a BMW 180M Sport model. I'm talking about full-on modded-out sports cars. The sound of the engine, the smell of the interior. I just have a thing for the old-style Testarossa, the Countach, the GTR. Beautiful lines and stunning engineering. I have pictures from motor shows and I am actually an auto journalist who cannot drive because, well, I don't have a driving license. There is an odd story behind that one that at some point I may well share, though not this week. So, of course, a film about street racing that is only really in part about street racing was always going to appeal. For the last few days, I have been desperately searching through my photo albums because all the way back in 2001, I was actually in California when Universal did a massive release push for The Fast and the Furious. And I had the chance to meet Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, plus have a walk around and touch, though you shouldn't really, and we weren't supposed to, two of the stunt cars that we used for the film. Can I find those photos anywhere now? Of course I can't. 
I can find my photos of me posing on Vasquez rocks, which fans of Star Trek will recognise. I can find my photos of Catherine Heigl and Colin Hanks. My pictures of me shaking hands with Bill Sadler. My eyes so big it looks as though they might just pop out of my head. But my pictures of those cars and the actors who drove them, no, can't find them anywhere. I am sure at some point they will show up and when they do, I will post them on my Instagram and possibly on Twitter. Anyway, less of my starry-eyed memories of celebrity meetings in LA and on with the show. Surprisingly enough, the film is actually based on a single article that was published in US magazine Vibe. The article, titled Racer X, was written by journalist Kenneth Lee way back in 1998 and is all about the world of New York street racing. I will post a link to the article in the comments below because it actually makes for a really interesting read. And funnily enough, Racer X was actually the code name for The Fast and the Furious when it was being made. Rob Cohen, the director of The Fast and the Furious, read the article and then went to watch some illegal night races in LA and he was immediately inspired. And so the idea was born. Approximately £27.4 million, pounds, or $38 million later, the film was finished with a cast of many and 78 destroyed cars. It was released on the 14th of September 2001 in the UK, and though I had already been to see it with friends in LA, I went to my local cinema to watch it again. The revving of those engines gets me every single time. Though it wasn't a massive hit with critics, in fact it only earned 54% on Rotten Tomatoes from critic reviews. So many films just aren't hits with them anyway. It did go on to make a very healthy profit at the box office, raking in almost £150 million, or $207.3 million globally. So while the critics weren't fans, Cohen had found his audience and they were going to the cinema in droves to see people racing and crashing a lot of very loud-engined, gas-guzzling cars. It would be really easy to say that this film is Point Break on Wheels. And in many ways, that is actually a compliment. Think about it. A young man with a love of sport is sent undercover to infiltrate a gang of surfers who, it is believed, are responsible for a series of bank robberies. Along the way, the undercover cop gets far too involved, falls in love with a girl tied closely to the gang and befriends the leader. Now, replace sport with cars, surfers with street races and bank robberies with truck hijackings and you have a pretty accurate summary of The Fast and the Furious. Despite this feeling like it's an homage to the Reeves and Swayze project, The Fast and the Furious made the story its own, and it would be incredibly unfair if I didn't give credit where it was due. What is the actual plot of The Fast and the Furious, and how did this one film end up becoming the first in a franchise that has destroyed over 2,180 cars and counting, and made over $6.5 billion at the global box office? The film starts with a heist, during which a truck that is carrying various electronic goods worth a fortune is robbed while in motion by a trio of drivers and their passengers in modified Honda Civics. These drivers get away with most of the cargo and they aren't caught. The following day, we're introduced to Brian Spilner, played by Paul Walker. He's been hanging around at Toretto's Market for a while and it's been noticed, especially by Vince, one of Don Toretto's crew. 
This is partially due to the fact that he's a complete stranger and has just started turning up, but also due to the fact that he has been subtly flirting with Dom's sister Mia, who works in the cafe. And as far as Vince is concerned, this is not acceptable, mostly because Vince is interested in Mia. Dom stops the fight that Vince starts and Brian leaves, but Vince is still pissed though he does seem to have just a tiny bit of an anger management issue anyway. Brian is working at a local performance parts store called The Racer's Edge, and when he arrives there, he tells the owner, Harry, that he's going to need NOS for his Mitsubishi Eclipse, which he wants to race, but has so far found that when he goes above 140, he starts to lose control of the car. Unsurprising, really? That night, Brian goes to the street races that don't actually start until Dominic Toretto shows up. He's infamous on the streets, a talented street racer that no one wants to mess with. Brian, definitely not as skilled when it comes to racing as people like Dom and his crew, loses the race. But before anything else can happen, they get an alert that the police are coming. So everyone disperses as quick as they can. Dom hides his car, which is incredibly recognisable, a bright red Mazda RX-7 with gold detailing, and then takes off on foot, but he's soon stopped by the police. Luckily for him, Brian pulls up and offers him an escape route. At this point, we get to see some subplot drama with the leader of another crew, Johnny Tran, who opens fire on Brian's car. Obviously, Brian and Dom are no longer in it. And we see that poor lime green eclipse meet its untimely demise in a huge explosion. Having helped Dom escape the grasp of the law, Brian is invited to join an after party at his house. Most of Dom's crew aren't exactly the most welcoming. Shocker. And after Dom heads off with his girlfriend Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, to celebrate in their own way, Brian is left looking like that person in the corner at a wedding who knows absolutely no one but came because they met the bridal party once while they were on holiday. At least he is that way until Mia comes along and saves him from the awkwardness. Things all seem really great until the next day when Brian is pulled off the road as he's on his way to work and he's arrested. This is the point where we discover that Brian is actually Brian O'Connor and he is part of a joint FBI-LAPD task force that has been set up to find out who the very efficient criminals that keep on robbing trucks are and he has been sent undercover because he is the perfect person for the job. Someone who can drive, has a bit of a checkered past and can find an in with the crew. Brian and Mia start to spend a bit more time together and so many times here, I really expected Dom to play the protective big brother and threaten him, but it never happens. And that's quite disappointing. Eventually, it seems that Mia gets fed up with waiting for Brian to make the first move, though, and she asks him out on a date. Despite the fact that he seems to want to take things, at least initially, slow with Mia, they end up in bed together on their first date. His hesitance likely has quite a lot to do with the fact that he is not only lying to her about what he does for a living and is out to possibly put her brother away for a very long time, but he's also not even told her his real name. While he is with her, he gets a call from his real boss letting him know that another truck was hit while he was absolutely 100% not doing his job and that they are going to make a move on Johnny Tran. Distracted, Brian agrees that they are the likely suspects. 
it's quite clear by this point in the game that Brian doesn't really want to contemplate any chance that Dom and his crew are the real criminals, though he is forced to face this realisation when it's proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Tran and his own crew are actually innocent. There is actually quite a lot of exposition in this film, and what's sad is the fact that the majority of it actually involves the cars. Well, this makes me sad anyway. Cue even more when we see that Brian and Dom are attending a legal street race called Race Wars, where the youngest member of Dom's crew, Jesse, does probably the stupidest thing in the film. Well, actually the second stupidest, but I'll get to that in a minute. Jesse decides that he's going to race his souped-up VW Jetta, a car that I only know of because before this film, the VW Jetta was in the TV show Roswell. Maria DeLuca drove one, and it sparked one of my first ever popular fan fiction stories. But anyway, less of that. Of course, he can't race just anyone. Jesse decides to bet the fate of his beloved Jetta against the more experienced driver, Johnny Tran, who is already angry because he was arrested for what turned out to be no reason whatsoever. So they race. Jesse loses. And before his pink slip can be taken, he drives off. Tran is less than amused, tells Dom to get his car back, and then accuses him of being a snitch because, of course, his business was raided by the police. And here we get to the stupidest moment in the entire film, or rather, the stupidest action by anyone in the film. Brian goes looking for Mia at the market and witnesses her and Dom arguing, though he has no idea what it's about. Knowing that the police are going to arrest Dom and his crew, Brian warns Mia, tells her not only is he a cop, but that he was lying about everything. Has he never heard the saying about a woman scorned? Or is he just oblivious at this point? Anyway, realising that Dom and his crew are about to pull another heist, he and Mia get into his car and head off to stop them before they can get into any more trouble. Of course, they get there too late. Vince has been shot by a truck driver and is in need of serious medical help. And the rest of the gang is in need of rescue before they too end up seriously injured. By this point, Brian's cover is totally blown. He would never last as a spy. That is definite. Of course, after the failed heist, Dom still has one thing left to do. He needs to save Jesse from his own stupidity. But he's too late for that too. And Brian and Dom have no choice but to watch as Jesse is gunned down in a coordinated drive-by carried out by Tran and one of his crew, Lance. No car movie is complete without a full-on car chase. Car races do not count. And this is the point where we finally get one, when the film is almost over. We also get to see Dom in the black charger that he was working on with his dad when his dad was unfortunately involved in an accident and died a pretty horrific and very fiery death. Though it initially appears that the chase is all about getting Tran, it doesn't end there. With Tran and Lance both dead, Brian now has to catch up with Dom and make him see sense, maybe even hand himself in. Yeah, that is so likely. However, when push comes to shove, Brian can't actually do it. He can't let Dom be caught. So despite the fact that he has Dom in his sights and this could actually make his career, 
He hands Dom the keys to his own car and watches him drive away, even as the sirens are sounding in the distance. So there you have it, the film that launched a nice multi-billion dollar franchise. But why did I choose it for my 50th episode? In all honesty, if I'd thought about it more and hadn't got pulled down the proverbial rabbit hole when I was researching, I would have likely talked about one of my preferred films in the series, the third one, that many would like not to exist, Tokyo Drift. There is just something about the way that they put that film together, the fact that it was so different and felt so out of place when compared to the films that came before it and definitely the ones that came afterwards, that really appeals to me. However, I thought that I should start at the beginning and perhaps at some point revisit the other films in some semblance of an order. And to be honest, the third film doesn't really go where it is. The timeline is very different. All that being said, this one does hold a solid place in my heart because it's the first time I realised that it wasn't all about how the cars looked, but a lot to do with how they sound. While I was doing my research, I actually discovered a few really interesting facts about the film and the franchise as a whole. The first thing that surprised me was that until this film actually started shooting, I had something in common with two of the main characters. That doesn't happen very often. Neither Jordana Brewster, who plays Mia, nor Michelle Rodriguez, who plays Letty, actually had driving licenses before they were hired for the film. They both had to learn to drive in order to play their roles. So there is still hope for me. Well, actually, who am I kidding? I would be an accident waiting to happen. Legitimately, I would be. And I would also be supremely disappointed when whatever I could afford to pay for a car would not get me behind the wheel of an F8 Tributo. Yeah, I really love that car. It is stunning. I have already mentioned that the film could easily be described as Point Break on Wheels. Well, in the first film, they do have a few moments where they make it plain this is what they're doing, including one scene where Dom and Brian have a meal at a place called Neptune's Net, a.k.a. the place where Tyler worked in the 1991 surf film. There is no one else that you could possibly associate with the gravelly-voiced Dominic Toretto other than Vin Diesel. However, at one point, director Rob Cohen really wanted Timothy Oliphant for the role. In many ways, it's actually a good thing that Oliphant had just finished filming another incredibly popular car-obsessed film with Nicolas Cage, Gone in 60 Seconds, so he turned it down, probably wanting to avoid any kind of typecasting. That said, I'm not honestly sure I could imagine Oliphant playing a wrench-wielding mechanic as well as Vin Diesel managed to. The role has truly benefited Vin Diesel and his career, including earning him the rights to Riddick, enabling him to make the trilogy that was originally envisaged when he took that particular role. He used his cameo appearance in Tokyo Drift as a bargaining chip, which is pretty savvy when you consider that it really was a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment. The film could have looked really different had Oliphant accepted the offer, and he could actually have easily been playing opposite Eminem in the role of Brian had the singer-turned-actor not turned down the role to work on his own autobiographical project, 8 Mile. I'm not sure that the film would have had quite the same energy with either of those characters played by different actors, if I'm honest. 
I think that they found a pretty good cast that stays pretty much the same throughout the entire franchise. A few days ago, as I mentioned earlier, I watched Hobbs and Shaw for the first time since it was released. And though that film is genuinely not good at all, I am curious to find out what happens with Ention's Big Bad, who is currently voiced by Ryan Reynolds, especially if a sequel appears on the release schedule at some point. Also, it's impossible to ignore the fact that there is something about the way those stunt drivers handle the cars that is like dancing. Take away the pounding soundtrack and you'll have sheer poetry on the screens with every single turn of the wheel. A couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to go to a motor show as part of my job as a journalist. And I had the pleasure of watching a team of stunt drivers in London taxis and other rather bulky vehicles and the things that these guys could do when behind the wheel was a sight to behold. So carefully timed and incredibly cleverly coordinated. Yes, I know that these films destroy a lot of cars. Some of them are stunning, like the Lycan Hypersport in Furious 7, or the Lamborghini Murcielago, though that orange colour not my thing, in Fate of the Furious. In Hobbs and Shaw, we have the gorgeous McLaren 720S. That could still be gathering dust in a warehouse somewhere in London after it was abandoned during a car chase through the city. That's wishful thinking, isn't it? Somebody's going to come across it one day covered in a dust sheet. Ooh, look at this. And the car keys are in it. Every film in this franchise just gets bigger and bigger. And I'm not going to spoil Fast 9 by talking about the finer plot points, though I will say, tongue-in-cheek, it's out of this world. <laughs> All of that having been said, I know full well that these films, not one of them, is highbrow. But then, if you like that sort of thing, listen to my book episodes, where I get much more degree-worthy in my analysis. I'm not going to say that these films are my guilty pleasure, because why should I feel guilty for enjoying the sort of mindless entertainment that these films bring? While we're at it, I have to say I don't believe that there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure, because if you feel guilty for doing it, then is it actually bringing you any pleasure in the process? We've come to the question and answer part of this episode. Let me know if there are any questions you would like to hear me answer about the show's or in this case, films that I watch, or if there is a show or film you'd really like to hear me cover. Did I enjoy it? Yes. It's one of those films that you can switch on and just watch while doing other things. There are parts I will always completely tune in for, but it's a film that I enjoy because it really doesn't require full engagement. Being honest, there isn't that much of a plot to any of the films in this series, and what plot there is is quite muddled but that doesn't matter when you put the film on to play in the background while you're catching up on social or reading the newspaper or in my case a book would I watch more at the moment there are nine films a spin-off and an animated series I haven't seen the animated series because I'm not really the target market but then to be fair I don't think a woman of 47 who doesn't have a driving license is the target market for the films either. I do watch them and I like them for what they are, car chases, explosions and somewhat ridiculous plots. But that can be fun. 
If you haven't seen any of the Fast and the Furious films yet, but you enjoy looking at stunning cars, listening to the rev of a proper engine, and yes, I know that all ICE cars have a proper engine, but here I mean a souped-up one that roars, then I would say give the first one, or the third, a go. They're fun and light-hearted, and the longest of the films is Fate of the Furious, which is just under two and a half hours long by a minute. So how are things in the coffee household this week? I've actually had a rather odd fortnight, truth be told. Two weeks ago, I spent the day with my family. It was originally meant to just be me and my mum, but then my sister's family drama stepped in to interfere in its usual way. It was my sister's mother-in-law's birthday, and they decided that as no more than six people could gather inside and they were originally planning on going to a restaurant because this was before the restrictions were removed, they would have a party on the Sunday afternoon in her back garden. Of course, being so communicative as normal, I didn't find this out until late on the Friday evening when it was too late for me to say that I'm not going to come. So instead of having a nice relaxing full day at my mum's where we had planned to do Manny Peddy's relax, sort out her computer our electricity, buy my new mattress and watch the last few episodes of the most recent season of MasterChef Australia, we ended up having to rush in order to get to my sister's for one o'clock. Everything was relatively calm, but despite this, I find spending time with lots of people together absolutely exhausting. I think that's the social anxiety and the no, it's just a social anxiety. It is actually partially due to that one day that I decided over the summer I would be reducing my output on the podcast down from two episodes per week to one. However, I will stress this is only until the summer is over. And on the 6th of September, I will be back to my book, TV show, regular routine. I have been experiencing a lot of unexplained tears and many disturbed nights over the last week and a half and though some of this is because we have been having something of a heat wave the rest of it has to do with the fact that I'm just struggling to sleep my bed looks like I'm having a massive fight every single night even though I am normally quite a static sleeper I close my eyes and I'm having some of the most vivid dreams I have ever had. Bright colours, people I know, and sometimes I wake up unsure as to whether I dreamed it or not. It's quite disturbing. All this said, since resolving the issues with work and having actually forced myself to spend time out of the flat, which is something I am not very good at on a normal day-to-day -day basis, as well as spending time with people, which is exhausting both mentally and physically, I'm doing quite well. Sometimes I will say that this is me heading for a fall, but despite the possibility things will go wrong, right now I am sitting on the more positive side of the fence and the grass isn't greener over yonder, so I think I'll stay right where I am, resume the status quo and get on with my life. I am not going to wait for the other shoe to drop because that's just asking for disaster. Instead, I'm going to keep on paddling away and keep my head above water.
So that's it for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the listen and I will be back next week for more. Don't forget, the bookshop will be open again on Monday as I am currently just a tiny bit behind this week. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or a star rating over on Podchaser because I love hearing what you guys have to say. Constructive criticism is never a bad thing. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I really have not had enough to cope with two hours of sleep. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell.